the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Episode 12, we return to the Moon Village Association in Deacon Edge, which is at Federation Square in Melbourne. The topic for discussion is mining and robotics on the Moon. So, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name's Anita Pabaka-Fox. I'm a, a senior researcher up at the University of Queensland. And my research focus is, has largely been around managing mine waste materials. So originally I'm a geologist, but I specialised in how we actually manage mine waste here on Earth and how we can actually mitigate some of those really awful things we see in the news where obviously mining practices go a bit wrong and we have sort of big disasters like the tailings dam failures and, and acid mine drainage. However, when we look to the moon, what we can sort of start to appreciate is we're going to have a whole different set of challenges when we come to do things like mining. Now, I'm very fortunate in my career to spend a lot of time at mine sites, and I'm always fascinated by seeing the masses of infrastructure that they need to actually extract these minerals from the Earth. But what would this look like on the moon? What sort of technologies are we going to need to actually be able to achieve this? So I'm really excited to have this panel here today who can help us understand the challenges and how they're going to address these challenges with technology and planning. So let me first introduce everyone. So first we've got Dr. Carlos Espagel. Uh, would you like to give a couple of sentences on who you are and your background? Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. So my name is uh, Carlos Espagel. Um, I'm actually a Mexican, Australian, now living in Luxembourg. And I actually did my bachelor's degree at the University of Queensland in mechanical engineering. Then I did a master's degree in mining engineering at the UNSW in Sydney. And then I did a PhD in strategic mine planning at UQ. And I just recently finished that last year. And at the same time, I did have, well, I do have 10 years of experience in the mining industry where I worked for uh, BHP, Anglo, and uh, Glencore and uh, do evaluation of deposits and mines and so on. And I just joined uh, recently iSpace last year. And one of my main jobs there is as well doing the evaluation of lunar deposits and future mine planning as well. And another of my roles is finding a connection between the mining industry, resources industry, like oil and gas, and the space industry. And yeah, that's a bit about me. 
Thank you very much. Uh, next, we have Bohan Deng. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Hello, everyone. I'm Bohan, and um, I'm currently a student at UNSW, where I'm pretty heavily involved in lots of space engineering projects as part of BlueSat. And I'm also the uh, CEO and co-founder of a lunar ISRU startup called Sperospace. It's very recent development, and I hope to share some of the stuff we're uh, going to do. Thank you. Thanks very much. And finally, we've got two representatives from the Nova Rover team. Uh, we've got Henry and Daniel, so please introduce yourselves. Hi, everyone. My name is Henry Lowry, and I'm the current team lead at Nova Rover. Uh, we're a student team from Monash University, and on my right here is Daniel Ricardo, not the uh, F1 driver, but the uh, science team lead from our team. So he's in charge of the subsystems which are involved in taking a sample of dirt from the ground and analysing it for life, essentially. We'll touch more on that later. But um, so we build Mars rovers to compete in university competitions, and we're hoping to attend our second in May this year. Excellent. And do you want to add any words? Or? Um, Henry, Henry sort of touched on everything. Yeah, so yeah. We're, we're all uni students from Monash University, and um, we, we do build Mars rovers, which is very exciting, and we are hoping to return back to America. Before we kick off with our question session, I just wanted to ask you guys all just a general question. So, you know, looking at the timeline of what you just presented there, Carlos, I mean, 2040, do you think that's a realistic time frame for, for sort of the, the, the big community, the moon village that you sort of presented there? Like, I yeah. don't actually, I feel a bit like I'm, I'm very supportive, you know, of, of trying to achieve that. But I mean, as with all things, there are always technical difficulties and things that you, you didn't foresee, you know, that arise. So, you know, what's, is there any leeway with that date or, or...? Well, we're strong on the vision, right? However, we know that, let's say, on Earth, once you find a discovery of a deposit, it usually takes anything from five to ten years to have a fully developed and operational mine. So from here to 2040, it's around 20 years. However, as I mentioned, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think we're going to have a full village with maybe... 20,000 people, but we will definitely have the opportunity of see the first settlement of humans uh, and start using resources in a very, very strategic way, like having these working pilot plants, uh, you know, pro uh, producing propellant and maybe some first materials for construction. Uh, so definitely we will see a first settlement on the moon. Any of you guys? Do you have thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, uh, I mostly agree with that. Um, definitely by 2040, I expect to see our commercialization of lunar resources. So up to 2030 would be uh, basically uh, technology demonstrations and basically planning everything out. So an, an analogy to the um, terrestrial mining industry is doing all the drilling work, the exploration work, and then going into pre-feasibility studies after that. And the only thing factor that may uh, play into the timelines is investment hype because uh, when you have, you know, a lot of hype being generated from companies landing on the moon, progress being made, that may accelerate things if you see uh, a lot of uh, investment pouring into the uh, moon aspect of the space industry. I guess I'll just say it reinforces the idea that everyone has to work together on this sort of common goal, that if everyone has this vision and we get government, industry, everyone working on the common goal, then I think anything can be possible. And yeah, just touching on that, um, with, with all this united efforts trying to 
reach out back to the moon, back to even Mars, um, it's, it's almost instigating a new space race and the implications of that could be beneficial or um, otherwise. But it's, it's definitely exciting and, and one of the unique aspects being a student is that you know, we're progressing into an age where all of this is, is the future, that's, that's the reality. So um, whether or not it happens in, in the timeline that Carlos um, was discussing, if that happens sooner or maybe even later, then you know, that's, that's something that we're gonna be part of, that's something that we're all gonna be a part of. You did. Um, do we have some questions from the audience? I see lots of hands going up, so where are the mics? Um, let's, there's a lady down the front here, please. Um, thanks for the presentation. Uh, you didn't touch on the very controversial nature of the ownership of space resources. Um, obviously, Luxembourg and the US have interpreted international law um, according to their own priorities around commercializing these resources. Um, and allowing for private ownership of them, if not the ground on which they um, are made. Uh, could you just chat a little bit about the ethical implications of that? We all know if we're talking about the lessons from the colonization of the new world, that what comes after a resource claim is usually having to defend that claim from other parties. Um, and you know many of the navies of um, the uh, developed world were developed in response to having to protect shipping lanes that they had formed and new markets that they had um, developed to a great cost in the new world. Um, how do you respond, given that you know the Moon Village Association is for everybody to have a say in these things, including the public? What do you say to people who believe we should not mine the moon? And that even a forum like this normalizes that idea and takes us closer to a dangerous future of um, war and space. Okay, uh, I'll start. Thank you very much for the question. That's actually a very, very important polemic, but very important question that we are addressing, not just iSpace, but a number of companies, governments, and so on. And I actually would like just to read the title of this group, which is quite long. Okay, so we are part of a group called the Hague International Space Resources Governance Working Group, right? And we, I always have to write it down. But pretty much it's a group made of um, governments where you find, we actually had a meeting, I was part of it at the end of last year. We had uh, the Russian government, uh, Chinese, the US of course, Japan, and so on, and the private companies that are intending to do some sort of commercialization with the moon. And the main talks, well there are a lot of talks, but they're pretty much trying to draft what will be the regulations around space resource utilization. Now, as we know, there is an outer space treaty and there's a moon treaty. Now, the moon treaty from 1979, right? It was not ratified by the main superpowers. It was not signed by the US, Russia, China, and so on, and Japan, because of three reasons, mainly. The first one is because that treaty was forbidding the use of commercial resources of space and the moon. Uh, the second one was that it forbids to put any sort of uh, defense system on the moon. And the third one is that it's forbidden to alter the environment of the moon. But the main one is the use of resources of the moon. And because of those main elements, uh, the moon treaty was not signed. However, we know that we as humans, and the question of 
so to answer the first question is like we're working actively on those uh, on that part because it needs to be it needs to take everyone into account and we as well, as, as I was mentioning we do not have to make the same mistakes that we are doing or that we have done in the past uh, now what we're looking at the moment is the following which is no one will be able to own a part of the moon, but we're going to be following something similar to what we do in international waters. For example, we are allowed to go into international waters, uh, be on a place, and fish the fish, but we do not own that part, but we do own the fish. So right now, they're following uh, something similar. Now, right now, uh, it's what they call safety zones. What does that mean? that if you are a company that is putting effort, scientific effort, financial effort, and energy into exploring the moon for resources, you will be given by the UN, the United Nations, uh, a radius which will be your safety zone. And then within that, within that safety zone, which will be delimited by space and, and time, there's going to be something else called priority rights, which says within that safety zone, there's going to be a section where you will be using those resources for commercial purposes, and you will, just, you will have their priority rights to use, to use those resources for a period of time. Now, as we know in the mining industry, when you, have, when you are extracting metal and producing a revenue, out of that revenue, there's something called a royalty. And a royalty goes back usually to the place where that mine is being developed. And then there's another part that is called a tax, but that's of profit, and that goes to government. Now, so far we're speaking about some sort of royalty. And that royalty will be of the revenue. And that royalty, instead of being, yeah, well, the local place would go back to the good of humanity. But then the next question is, who are the space companies going to give that, let's say, 5% of royalty to? Uh, so far, the first answer is, well, it will go back to the UN. And then the UN will decide who to distribute that. And right now, the thinking behind is to pass that money to the countries that are developing their space technology so they can as well progress in space technology. And the next question is, who within the UN? Well, that's still to see. And in the, in the other question of, should we go to the moon or to space? and to use those resources. I think of, or, and this is my personal opinion, um, I think as we as humans, we're very curious, and we like to keep expanding and traveling and so on. And in our curiosity, we will want to go further than Mars. We will, at some point, we will want to exit the solar system and keep traveling. And what we do today is if we want to go from Melbourne to Brisbane, we do not fill one car with 1,000 liters of fuel. We actually go and stop every couple of hundred of kilometers and refuel the car and keep going. So the first, one of the first answers of why, why do we want to produce propellant in space is to keep furthering our expansion and exploration activities. So if we actually want to exit the solar system, we will need to build um, space fuel stations or pretty much uh, going, let's say, going to the moon, refueling, going to one of the moons of Mars, refuel, go to Mars, refuel, go to Jupiter, refuel, and so on. And there's actually millions of asteroids that can have water around the solar system. And then we can come up with a pretty cool optimization system in what asteroids should we jump to 
and refuel and keep going. Uh, so my personal opinion is that in order for us to keep expanding and keep doing scientific exploration and so on, we will have to use uh, resources. And the universe is vast and huge. Okay, so I'll reiterate what um, Carlos has said, which is to basically prevent conflict in space. Uh, it's highly dependent on progress being made in these international groups. Uh, about Australia specifically though, because Australia is a signatory to the Moon Treaty, it makes things interesting. Um, in this, regarding the Moon Treaty, if you have a look at the details, uh, it's actually a lot more intricate than a straight, uh, no, you cannot do this at all because, okay, I'll touch on the environment aspect. The specific wording uh, it uses is that you have to take steps to limit uh, environment, environmental um, damage, basically. It does not straight up forbid any uh, environmental impact at all because then you can't even land anything on the moon. So <clears throat> that's one aspect. And also the ownership aspect, that's the, that's the important one that Carlos touched on. The interesting thing about uh, doing a business is that you don't necessarily have to own something to sell it. You could sell a service. So in our specific instance, by focusing on the processing step, uh, for now, basically, the, we don't claim ownership of any material that passes through the process. Instead, we're doing the work for basically a customer. And because the most likely customers are almost certainly not going to be signatories to the Moon Treaty, we're totally fine. And also, uh, regarding this, uh, basically, this whole uh, services and uh, whether we can operate within the Moon Treaty or not, I have received advice from Professor Stephen Freeland, who is Australia's leading space lawyer, in this regard that we're in the clear. Love it or hate it, Federation Square is an unmissable part of Melbourne. The Moon Village Association is our host, and being discussed is the mining and robotics on the moon. I'll try and address your last point, which was about how would we respond to people who say that they, we shouldn't go to the moon, essentially, to mine resources. And I think that's a, a great question, just because this audience is obviously very focused on that one goal. And I think it emphasises the, um, the importance of, a, of things like Moon Village Association to try and take all points um, in view and, and work towards a common goal, addressing all stakeholders, not just the nerds in the room who love space essentially. Um, one, of the, one of the lovely case studies or just examples that I like to bring up in terms of discussing, um, you, could, you could say the exploitation of planetary resources is looking at Antarctica. So Antarctica is not owned by any one country. It's instead a, a designated area of land that is inhabited by a series of research stations from all over the world. So it's, it's a good example to, to illustrate how if we were to um, set up a base on Mars, it wouldn't be owned by any one group or conglomerate. It would be sort of divided dependent on who would set up that base and there would be um, national research labs as a scientific outpost. But then on top of that, um, Antarctica actually has massive kilometer thick seams of coal. So there is a massive amount of interest from mining groups all over the world who keep pushing, saying, oh, can I just have a little bit? It won't, it won't do anything. And then, oh, can I have just have a little bit more? So it's a good, it's a good um, 
live case study to look at how the, the communication bec between different countries, between industry, government, um, special interest groups would interact or how they are interacting with Antarctica. And then you can extrapolate that and look at, okay, if we were to take this and look at the moon or um, asteroids and comets as other planetary resources, how could we intervene? What um, protocols should we establish? How can we sort of um, guide that discussion and say, okay, this didn't work or this did work in Antarctica. Let's carry that on over. Great, thanks. Can I just quickly make a response to that? We should also keep in mind that the, under the Antarctic Treaty, there's a ban on mining for 50 years, if not longer. And Australia was really instrumental, um, along with France, in leading the world towards making that decision. So it's not impossible for us to actually do the same on the moon. And I'd also like to say, I love space too. Um, and that's why I want to protect it. So I think we shouldn't say that only the space geeks who want to mine the you know, resources love space. There are many different ways to respond to space and to express our love for it. Yep. Um, just a final point about that is that the framework for the Moon Treaty was intended to be uh, an interim solution. So given that Australia has now, at least within the agency, has indicated interest in continuing with this Moon Treaty, they're actually actively working on uh, basically outlining the details in how you can economically um, use the moon and what are you allowed to do. So it's, it's intended to be an interim thing that is changed in the future and much more likely than not uh, for economic um, development rather than against. Uh, I just would like to add to that, if that's okay. Um, in terms of the Moon Treaty, uh, we're still looking at it. Actually, one of the conclusions of the last meeting with the Hague International Working Group was that, and this was a recommendation from the UN, which is the Moon Treaty is actually really good. There's just a couple of parts that need to be uh, defined better and constrained better in how this should be approached and for how long and how big and so on. So the Moon Treaty is still inside to just still be used and just modified a bit. Now the next part is, and we're not really thinking or planning to go to the moon and do and create some massive extraction operations. No, actually, if we think about it realistically, even though there's resources on the moon, it's in low concentrations. And a lot of these resources, like the water, comes from comet impact and, and asteroid impact. So in reality, what we are planning is to go to the moon, uh, test the technology, and yeah, have some first fuel stations for pretty much travel, space travel, but the real future space mines will be asteroids. And asteroids that keep impacting with planets and moons and, and so on. And for instance, the asteroid belt just after Mars is extremely rich in resources. And we're gonna find anything from water, organics, met, uh, metals, and so on. So the moon will be just a first step in testing our technology, but we are not really intending to have large operations, for instance. Thank you, guys. I just want to make a quick point myself. I mean, what we're hearing here is that we have to mine with principles. And I think Giuseppe this morning, when he gave his presentation, obviously he said that principles was kind of integral to the future of, of any planning of, of humans and on the moon. So 
here on Earth, you know, when we look at mining, we obviously discuss a lot now mining with principles, and we look at risk factors in mining here on Earth, and the number one risk factor for 2019 is the social license to operate. And obviously, intertwined with that is sort of how we environmentally manage our, our mine sites and look at their impacts and how we manage that waste material. So given that that's at the forefront of, of, of thoughts here on Earth, that's definitely something that's going to translate into any progress that we make uh, uh, outside of the Earth, on the Moon and beyond. So I think also thinking about Carlos's new code, the, the, the jork code for the Moon, should we say. I mean, I, I very much uh, expect a lot of environmental factors to be considered in this, this code th that you'll be discussing with others. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be taken into account as social, environmental and principles and so on. And as I was saying just before, uh, we're in space, we're going to be developing completely new technology, completely new standards, and that approaches and addresses all these factors, of yeah. course. So uh, hi, I have a question. Um, so let's assume that colonization will be successful and that these companies will be mining the moon. Uh, as Australians age, about half of them have chronic health concerns. What place will there be for unions and OH&S in a capitalist society that's only there to mine the resources? Um, one, of the, one of the unique aspects about the, the Rover Challenge and other robotic competitions is that the, the, the reason for it is always harm reduction and harm minimization and taking humans out of harm's way. So. Um, a great example for that is in relation to mining specifically, we were actually approached by the UK Centre for Astrobiology to develop a rover for them to go into the underground salt mines where it is extremely hot, it is extremely dangerous. It's, it's the, the whole focus is about taking humans out of dangerous situations. So um, whenever I talk about the rover to children, the first thing I say is, why do we want to use a rover in the first place? Why not send a human to, to Mars or to the moon? the main response they get is, oh, because you can die. That's exactly right, humans can die. Rovers are replaceable, rovers are expendable. You can send another one up for a couple million dollars, you can't really replace a human life. So in terms of uh, unions, I'm sure with the, if we do set up bases on the moon, there will be infrastructure to support human um, expeditions, but the, the main goal is always to reduce the amount that humans would have to go out onto the surface, because if there is a potential for risk, um, the risk will happen. I think it's Murphy's Law. If there is something that can go wrong, it will go wrong. So the entire idea is to um, take humans out of the risk. But if, in terms of like the unions, um, I'm sure you guys can touch on that a little bit more. Uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll just re repeat the point, kind of, which is that uh, the image of space mining uh, is much different from the one you may think of when you think of traditional mining, where you have people you know, deep underground, Lots, it's very, very labor-intensive, whereas for, for space, that's really not possible because it's just too expensive and also, as mentioned before, the risk factor. So almost all the mining and uh, equipment would be done autonomously. Um, as for the human safety factor, uh, I believe there's already uh, very good existing protocols developed by you know, the big space agencies when it comes to safety of the astronauts involved. So I see no reason why that cannot be similarly applied for future commercial operations. 
Yeah, definitely. And I would like to second on, on them. And this is the what, this is the main reason in iSpace we're looking on robotics and rovers because uh, the operations will be 100% uh, done by rovers and autonomous systems. And maybe in the worst case, we will have people on Earth still doing and sending some commands to the rovers, but mainly will be uh, fully autonomous. Now, uh, in terms of the health and safety concerns, uh, let's say within the mining industry, we know there are still some big accidents happening on Earth. For instance, there was just a big uh, disaster in Brazil with uh, Valley and BHP, where uh, tailings dam, one of the walls just collapsed. And actually, um, some of the surveyors or people that were on the wall were taken uh, with them, and 80 people and so on. So actually, one of the things we're actually working in iSpace is how can we uh, transfer or technology of the rovers to the mining industry. For instance, instead of sending surveyors to the walls uh, or to the benches after blasting, you can actually now send fully autonomous rovers with a sampling system, sensors, and so on, and to do the jobs that should not be done by humans anymore. And, and that's what I mean, that now the space industry has technology that can be transferred uh, to the mining and, and earth industries. I thought that was a really nice point you made in your presentation about that, the transferable technologies and how they can improve mining on Earth. So I enjoyed that. But that actually brings me to a point. Um, in terms of like our traditional mining companies here on Earth, our BHPs and our Rio Tintos and Newcrest and so forth, how many of those are interested in this space? Do you, um, do you, do you guys get a lot of people sort of coming to you? And you guys, on the back of your shirts, you've got Boeing written down there. So, you know, are they, are they sort of thinking of, you know, how's their, their development going in terms of thinking of getting, you know, these things upscaled and onto the moon and so forth? So if you could talk about that. Um, in terms of an industry that, is, is set to explode. Um, is actually an industry that I'm really interested in is planetary mining, planetary resources, and looking at comets and asteroids as a source for minerals, rocket propellant, and just a, a stepping stone for further exploration. Um, in terms of us getting approached, um, there, is, there is a bit of a miscommunication between academics and students and industry and, and, and government, for, for that matter. Um, in terms of looking at... Um, actually taking rovers and uh, systems that are already developed and taking it to the to space, there is a whole system architecture and testing required that that needs to be done. And that in terms of like g getting that progress initiated, that is the key area that needs to be focused on. Um, one of the things that I like to look at is the NASA technology readiness level. So it's a flow chart that indicates at what stage the technology in its lifetime, and essentially, when can we send it to, to space? And there's step one, two, three, four, five. Um, I think it goes up to seven. And, and the critical aspect where most technology either gets a thumbs up or thumbs down, let's say, to go on the Curiosity or Mars 2020 payload is, does it work on Earth? Does it work in space? And if it does, it can fly. And, and the inclination to always use um, systems that have mission heritage, or that means that they have success is, is the sole reason why Mars 2020 looks exactly like Curiosity, because they know it works. So in terms of mining exploration, we don't know what works. So we don't really have any, any fallback to say, okay, let's send this. It's, it's a massive area for development, and I think that's the main steps that people need to start looking at, is if we are talking about mining, robotics, we, we first need to look at what works, and then 
looking, looking further back about in terms of getting the technology started. It may be companies, it may be you know, student teams like us who have a cool idea. Um, it's, it's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of steps that need to be taken and considered before we start thinking about let's send an um, autonomous rover that harvests silicates to the moon. Okay, so big aerospace primes like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, they're very interested. It's part of their big plan when it comes to basically developing a space sector uh, beyond the traditional, traditional satellite market. Now, when it comes to traditional mining companies, the story is quite different because while mining companies, even big ones, they take on a lot of risk, uh, what they don't like taking on is unknown technical risk. So that's where, uh, the, as mentioned earlier, the technology has to be proven to a certain level so that the major, major, major mining companies could de-risk the project technically and then they would be much more interested in basically uh, taking on the mature technology and bring that mature uh, technology to market. Exactly right. So maybe I cannot mention the names, but we have actually spoken to a number of mining companies and even oil and gas companies that have approached us as well. And it really depends on their strategic long-term plan of each of the companies. But the main... Uh, Thing that we have heard especially is that yes they're interested in us but mainly to find applications of space technology into their operations because they know that we have technologies that they can be benefit from and especially uh, to benefit production health and safety uh, autonomous systems uh, sensing technologies and so on and that's one of the chats I'm having actually next week with one of them um, yeah, good, thank you. Uh, do we have any more questions from the floor? Um, I saw some questions up at the back. The, the two kids... Did you, did you have a question? Oh, goodness me, that's my son. <laughs> <laughs> When's the next time you think humans might go on the moon? Good question. <laughs> I like this question. Uh, I'd say between 2025 and 2030. So, you know, 20, 2028 or so, that's when. That's, a, that's right. So, so far, all the efforts have been pretty much pointed towards rovers and autonomous systems. In terms of when humans are going next, that's a good uh, uh, approach. Now, I was just reading in the news today that SpaceX is launching, I think tomorrow, their uh, Crew Dragon, which is they're going to be the first uh, private company to send humans to space. So, uh, and this is the beauty of private companies, right? That in comparison to the state space agencies, we kind of like to fail fast and therefore learn fast and then succeed faster. And that at the same time, uh, besides bringing technology and success stories faster, um, yeah, we will be seeing uh, things like going, sending people to the moon or Mars uh, way faster than we thought. Okay, thank you, Cohen. So I just want to thank the panel again, if everyone can give them a round of applause.